0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. I'm Carol Vassar, and our first episode of 2023 is a matter of completions and connections left from last year, because this is the final episode in our occasional series on precision medicine here at Nemours. In the series, we've talked with Nemours experts on pharmacogenomics, biobanking and molecular analysis, and genetics and genetic counseling. So what's left? Big data and predictive analytics, mainly for the purpose of research. Collecting it, preparing it, analyzing it, and protecting it are the realm of the Nemours Biomedical Research Informatics Center, known as BRIC. BRIC provides consultation, training, and computational resources to biomedical research investigators across the enterprise and beyond. Joining us today to talk about predictive analytics in medical research are Dr. Timothy Bennell, the director who oversees BRIC, and Daniel Eckrich, Brick's supervisor for research Applications. Big data and predictive analytics may be relatively new terms to most of us, but BRIC has been a leader in this area for years. Dr. Timothy Bunnell gets us started with some background on BRIC.
1: It started out being called the Bioinformatics Corps, and it was intended to provide the sort of data storage and data analysis capabilities that are really necessary these days for biological and medical data. The data has just exploded into the 21st century, so there's massive amounts of data to be stored and analyzed and try to make sense of. I think the name BRIC started sticking with us in the early 2000s as we grew into a larger center that provided larger amounts of service. So we we now work with Nemours IS, I guess I should say, in developing and maintaining the high-performance computing cores for the research department. And the massive data storage for the research department. So we have machines that are now capable of running hundreds or even thousands of arithmetic operations in parallel and storing, I think right now, about 1.5 petabytes of data. And that's only going to grow as, as the data continues to grow, particularly with things like genome sequencing and microscope data, which is very massive as well.
0: Researchers are your main focus and your main customer, if you will?
1: Very, very heavily research-oriented, but not entirely because we have worked with folks in the value-based service organization within Nemours trying to do things like look at the likelihood that a patient who's released from the hospital, returned to the hospital again within 30 days in an unexpected manner. And Trying to predict that sort of behavior is one of the goals of the sort of work that we do in in RIC with using the data that we've collected from the health records.
0: And that's one of the thresholds CMS looks at when they're looking to make certain that there is quality within a healthcare facility, right?
1: Absolutely. And you want to be able to predict what's the cause of that and then be able to hopefully jump in and short circuit whatever the the Causes are that are causing people to return so frequently.
0: Which leads us very nicely into the question I want to ask What is predictive analytics? I think you really just gave us a great example of it. What ingredients are needed for predictive analytics and how is it applied in a healthcare setting? I think that was just a great example. Are there others?
1: Well, there are plenty of them. Pick any disease and the way that disease has been treated historically, and whether there are things that we could be doing better to treat that disease or that outcome for children. So you asked, what's needed? Well, the first thing that's needed above all else is good data and lots of it. The more data we have and the more history we can bring to bear on care in the past, the better we can predict how care will unroll in the future with patients and One of the big sources of data, as I've mentioned, is our electronic health records, where we have all of the discrete facts about patients, what conditions they've been diagnosed with, what medications they've been given, what kind of procedures have been performed on that patient in the past. Things like that are the facts that we can use to characterize each patient and then do predictions on that patient's likelihood of different disease outcomes or as we mentioned earlier, returning to the hospital after a release. In addition to those hospital facts, though, and this is where Dan's expertise has really been useful to us, we're discovering that some of the social determinants of health are really crucial to trying to figure out what are likely outcomes for patients. Dan has now managed to do geolocating on a large proportion of our patients. And well, Dan, I
2: should let you talk about this because you understand it much better than I do. Sure. I think it ties in with the whole precision medicine focus of both the clinical record on a patient, the environment, as well as behaviors. So with the GIS coding that we've been doing to geolocate all the patients, it's over, as Tim mentioned before, I believe 3 million patients. Uh, and with historical addresses, we have over 9 million addresses and we've gone ahead and run all of those through a, a software program to find the latitude and longitude of those patients. And with that, we can use the census shape files to go ahead and actually place those patients in census tracks, census block groups, some of the geo-identifiers that they use. And then taking that to the next step, there's all of the census data and American community survey data about the environments that patients are raised in. And there are the indices that have been developed, like the child opportunity index, The area deprivation index, social vulnerability index. There's all of these vetted composite scores related to the area where patients are, are living that we can also bring into their clinical record. And when we're performing large scale big data analytics, we can apply those as well to the research that we're doing and, and see how they factor into some of the outcomes that we're looking at.
0: How does that change the services we provide? At the patient level?
2: I think that this is a relatively new area that we're looking at. You know, I think ideally you'd be able to, to identify the patients who are at higher risk for, as mentioned before, a readmission or a higher risk of adverse events that may take place. And if you can develop an intervention or help with clinical decision support, it can benefit and have more positive outcomes for the patient, ideally.
1: So we can identify patients who live in food deserts, as they're called, areas where there really isn't healthy food easily available. They may, say, a child with asthma who may live very close to some sort of chemical plant or something that's actually producing extra amounts of of pollution in the atmosphere. And if we can identify some of these things, like the transportation issues, we can help with getting kids to the hospital when they need to get here, calling and making sure that they have a way to get here when their appointment is occurring. It's a very simple, completely non-medical, but absolutely crucial thing is to get to the medical appointments that you've made in order to be able to be treated.
0: And that very much speaks to the benefits of predictive analytics in healthcare and an application that. I think most people aren't even aware, is available. What other benefits are coming from predictive analytics?
2: I mean, I think some of the potential as well as being able to allocate resources to identify areas where maybe we could have more resources available, more staff available uh, and all of that. If you're looking at very much the nuts and bolts kind of process, in addition to just patient care, also how the hospital itself operates.
1: And right now we're having a staffing shortage because of all the respiratory viruses that are going around among kids. You know, being able to predict that in advance and being able to to adjust your staffing levels to anticipate that wave of of things would be great. I can't say that we've succeeded all that well in this particular case. We were looking elsewhere, if you will, at the time. But another one of the things that we've looked at a lot is the use of predictive analytics to um, assess the comparative effectiveness of different methods of treatment. And we've done that, for instance, with COVID in particular, that's been one of the large emphasis areas for the medical research these days. Obviously, the pandemic has driven a lot of that. For instance, we've been able to use uh, machine learning algorithms to analyze massive amounts of data on COVID patients and look at what are the combinations of therapeutic agents that are given to those patients that lead to better outcomes for the patients. Fewer deaths and uh, shorter hospital stays, more kids going home sooner.
0: Now, Tim, you said something earlier, very early in the interview, about having good data is really the main ingredient of predictive analytics. Define what you mean by good data. Maybe that's a basic marketing term, but... um, looking at data and making sure that it is good versus not good how how does that happen
1: well unfortunately it does not happen automatically or easily it's a major effort and electronic health record data is especially challenging in that regard really if you think about it all of those data that we have in our electronic health records were collected for the purposes of operating a hospital doing billing collecting things that you need to collect, they are not really intended to be used for research purposes. And so when we pull those data out, there's a lot of additional analyses that we have to do in care that we have to take to be sure that if we have decided that a patient has a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, that it really is a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes and not something that just has one or two condition codes that are somehow related to that diagnosis. For instance, a physician might have ordered some analyses that would be related to type two diabetes simply because they wanted to eliminate that as a diagnosis rather than that that is a positive diagnosis. So this is a whole research area really called computable phenotypes, where we're trying to figure out how to take the electronic health record data and compute from that an accurate phenotype for a patient, an accurate description of what that patient is really like, as opposed to all of the potential noise that comes in there from looking at billing codes
2: rather than carefully vetted diagnoses. I think Tim touched on on one thing, and I'm probably just going to reemphasize it because it's such a major part that I think goes unrecognized and underappreciated is just the amount of data quality analysis and validation that is necessary to make this work. Um, predictive analytics and what comes out of it is very eye-catching and draws a lot of attention, but there is a tremendous amount of work that goes on behind the scenes to just get to the point where we can do some of this work that I'd like to point out and just make sure that people do understand the effort. I would call out in particular our systems administrator who just works
1: tirelessly to keep this high performance computing stuff working and finding the best new ways to do it. And without all of that support organization, and frankly, the support of Namur's IS as well, because they're at the very base of things responsible for maintaining the network, are absolutely crucial to what we do.
0: On your team. I'm hearing Dan and Tim and a couple of others. I mean, that's that's a pretty small team. Am I, did I hear that correctly and interpret that correctly?
1: It is more than a couple. Just to list the folks, in addition to Dan and I, uh, we have Dr. Suzanne McCann, who's a molecular biologist and informatician. Chris Pennington, who's a computer scientist and who maintains our systems and databases for us. Michael Peck, who is a, a web developer and does a lot of the programming that allows us to display data on
2: webs and collect data via web forms and things like that. We have a small footprint, uh, especially relative to some other uh, institutions, but I do think that we operate effectively and efficiently as well with the small team.
0: When we talk about individuals and bringing this right down to where they live, maybe where they work, where they play, where their parents work, it raises The idea of confidentiality. How do you assure that everything that you are doing in terms of predictive analytics and with the data that you're working with is kept secure?
1: So a big part of the process of getting the data into our research database is called extraction, translation, and loading. We extract the data from the electronic health records, which is all identifiable personal health information in many cases, and we have to transform that data to a format that is less likely to contain any personal information. Our research database does contain accurate dates of patients, and it contains accurate location information on patients, accurate down to a census block group, actually. But it does not contain the patient name social security numbers credit card numbers things like that are all scrubbed out of the database our identifiers are all just randomly assigned integers every patient has this integer that we use which without a fairly elaborate process can't be mapped back to who the patient really is and then further when we're developing analytic data sets to use in statistical analyses or something like that. We take a couple of additional measures, for instance, with dates. Rather than use the actual dates, like the patient's birth date and a date of a visit, we'll skew those dates by a random amount of time, always assigning the same random skew within a patient to all of the dates for that patient. But every patient has a different random skew. So, you can look at durations like the time from birth to their first hospital visit. That duration measurement will be accurate given the date skew, but the dates of that birth and first visit are different than the real dates of that birth and first visit. Statistically, it's very difficult to be able to reverse engineer the data and actually get back to identify.
0: Which I know if parents are listening right now is a great comfort. They know that it is not identifiable directly back to their child. Dan, tell us about some of the research that you might know of that's being conducted or maybe already published that's involved predictive analytics.
2: Some of the work going on at Nemours, one of the biggest projects, I guess we are collaborating with the University of Delaware, Dr. Bunnell, Dr. Fan, Dr. Beheshti at University of Delaware, uh, Mihawk Gupta. We're looking at pulling in electronic healthcare record as well as social determinants of health for trying to do predicting obesity outcomes and trying to provide interventions with the patients. I know that was one of the biggest projects that we had worked on. Additionally, Tim had mentioned about the unexpected readmission work that we were collaborating with the VBSO group on. There is another project that I just started with involving the National COVID Cohort Collaborative which is another large network that the Moors is participating in through the Delaware CTR, looking at trying to predict severe mental health outcomes along the lines of bipolar disease and schizophrenia to see if there is an increase based on a COVID diagnosis and what factors may be impacting that outcome as well. So this is a relatively new study that's just getting ramped up right now. Those are the ones that are right off the top of my head, probably continue going on for quite a while on this.
0: Tim, anything you want to highlight?
1: I'll mention also some of the work that we're doing, again, related to COVID, but this time related to long COVID, which is the conditions that occur for some people after they've had COVID and gotten over it. They have all kinds of additional comorbidities or or ailments that seem to have been triggered by having had COVID. And one of the things that my team here at Nemours is particularly working with on the project is the natural language processing components of the electronic health records. For that study, we've actually taken a sample of physicians' notes from the Nemours patients and from other institutions who are collaborating with us on this project. And we first of all run those notes through a process that de-identifies the notes data by removing names or replacing them with with alternate names so that you can't tell who the patient is or who the physician is. It also masks out dates and phone numbers and things like that. Uh, So these notes have been de-identified. And then we're using natural language processing to search for functional outcomes in the notes. And this is things like children missing school, having uh, difficulty concentrating, brain fog being one of the known outcomes of long COVID and attempting to find things in the notes that wouldn't necessarily have made it into the discrete data elements in the electronic health records.
0: Tim, what's your vision for BRIC moving forward next one to two years and maybe five years and more?
1: Well, one of the things that we're trying to do is grow our data science capabilities here we were lucky enough to have hired one data scientist in the in the last year. And we're collaborating now with people in some other departments to hire additional data scientists, just simply because the amount of work to do far exceeds the amount of time that Dan and I, and a and couple of other people who are working on this already have available to spend. So I, I see this as an area that's going to expand rapidly. We'll be talking with folks in the quality improvement areas and the value-based services organization looking at social determinants. So the more of these different components of machine learning and predictive analytics we bring in, the more people we're going to need to address it.
0: Dan, I want to ask you, how do you think BRIC fits into the Nemours vision of Well Beyond Medicine?
2: So I think if we're looking at the mission statement behind Well Beyond Medicine, if I remember it correctly, it's 80% 80% of healthcare happens outside of the medical setting. And I think that a lot of the work that we're doing, particularly with the social determinants of health, socioeconomic status, geocoding, uh, additionally, if you want to throw in some of the, the natural language processing that we're discussing about evaluating the, the comments and notes being made with patients, I think we are working at expanding beyond just the clinical record of a patient that we are trying to look at the whole picture of the patient, their entire environment, in addition to their medical and clinical data, and be able to use that to improve outcomes and improve patient care.
0: Tim, what do you you think? How does BRIC fit into the Well Beyond Medicine vision?
1: There's so much that goes on outside of the medical care domain that's really crucial to the health of children. And children are really crucial to the health of the nation as a whole, so we need to focus on what we can do to address some of these things that fall sort of outside the regular domain of healthcare.
0: Dr. Timothy Bennell is the director of the Nemours Biomedical Research Informatics Center, better known as BRIC. He was joined in conversation by Daniel Eckrich, BRIC's supervisor for research applications. If you're looking for the Precision Medicine series in its entirety, check the show notes of this episode. I'll put links to all of the previous Precision Medicine episodes right there for your convenience. What do video games, mobile medical clinics, voice banking, and Michael Phelps all have in common? Well, they'll be featured topics or guests on upcoming episodes of the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. Help us guide what you want to hear. Send your ideas for future podcasts to podcast at Nemours.org. That's podcast at Nemours.org. Don't forget to share your love of this podcast with your family, friends, and Nemours colleagues. Tell them it's available on Nemours Net, the Nemours Now app, their favorite podcast app, and their smart speaker. Many thanks to our production team for their help on this particular episode, Savannah Pettit, Cheryl Munn, Jay Parker, and Rachel Salas-Silverman. Special thanks to Benjamin Duong for his work on the entire Precision Medicine series. It would not have been possible without him. Thanks, Ben. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions in Turners Falls, Massachusetts. On behalf of Daniel Eckrich and Dr. Timothy Bennell, I'm Carol Vassar. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. Until next time, please stay safe, stay well, and thank you for all you do for the children and families we serve.